Hi guys, it's been a long time coming, but the Designer to Designer podcast is finally back. And it's not just here, the entry platform is back, social media, our TikTok account is running, we've got a brand new website, new brand and new logo. As you can see, new podcast artwork as well. It's just a really good time. And I took a lot of time off to recalibrate and figure out the direction of the entry platform which ultimately impacts this podcast of course and many other factors and of course you guys so it's a very exciting time I'm not going to go into so much detail about it at least in this episode but just make sure you stay tuned to hear about all the new things that will work with you for our first episode, we have the amazing Reni Abina. She is a Nigerian designer based in Lagos, and she runs a brand called Rendell, which is a contemporary and affordable women's wear label. I really enjoyed this conversation with Reni because she truly provided actionable steps that you can take to elevate your brand. Of course, you know how I am. I'm nosy. I dived into the early stages, the nitty gritty, how she overcame those really tough times. But there's also loads of gems about those specific first steps when she launched Rendell and the specific action points that she takes when she launches a new collection and why she releases five collections um, a year. There's actually, you know, reasons behind all of these things and what her marketing priorities are today. And at the end, we also provide you with a very simple hack for you to gain more information about your customers when they visit your website. So make sure you listen to the full episode. I hope you enjoy it and please do leave us a review as the more support we have, honestly, that is what keeps this podcast running. That's what helps the energy platform grow. And as we grow, you grow because we can provide you with more information, more guests, more events, more products, all of those fun things. It just takes 10 seconds. So tap five stars and let us know what you love about the podcast and what you want to hear on the podcast. Do you want more solo episodes? Do you want more? Um, do you want a specific designer? We're always here to listen and take your feedback. Welcome to the Designer to Designer podcast show. This is a safe space created for aspiring and startup fashion designers entrepreneurs. Through this podcast show, I sit down with some of your favorite independent designers and give you exclusive behind the scenes access to their lives and brands. I aim to make sure you get to know the designers for who they are and finally engage with relatable stories. We touch on everything from mindset to finances to their childhoods and their biggest, wildest fashion dreams. This podcast is hosted by yours truly, Rebecca Tembo, founder of a self-titled women's wear label and the entry platform which produces this show. Now sit tight, enjoy the ride and get ready to be blown away by today's episode. Welcome to the Designer to Designer podcast, Renny. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. You've been to law school and I actually just saw that you recently graduated with an MBA. Amazing. Congrats. Um, was there a point in life where you envisioned yourself in the fashion industry? And if not, how did you go about changing careers? <clears throat> so I'd say I've always kind of done a couple of things at the same time. So while I was in A-levels and uni, I had a hair brand. So even though I knew I was studying law, I was still doing hair on the side. So for me, it's never been about just doing one thing. So with law school, but in terms of a clothing brand, I didn't really see myself ending up here. So in law, um, I did law school and then I started working as a lawyer and I was like, okay, you know what? I want to do a master's, but I'm not really enjoying law. So I don't want to do my master's in law. So I did it. I did an MBA. And then while I was doing the MBA, I kind of stumbled on the plan for Rendor. So it was like my MBA and Rendor on the side. So it was almost like Rendor was like a case study for my MBA. And then after the MBA, I was like, yeah, I'm not going back to law. This is what I'm doing. So, yeah. <laughs> cool. That's actually a good way to start on the topic of Rendor. So where did that idea come from? And what did that first year look like for you? I was sitting in traffic. And if you know anything about Lagos, it's like we have a lot of traffic. So you have a lot of time to think while you're just sitting in the car. And it came from a place where I had been living in England for about five years now. And at that point, like before I moved back to Nigeria for law school, and it was always easy to buy anything I wanted. And I would order anything I want, next to delivery would come. And I found that when I moved back to Nigeria, I couldn't really find for the price points that I was working with. I mean, if you're just starting a job, you don't really have that much money, ETC. So I, the things that I liked, it turned out I had expensive taste. So the things that I liked, I couldn't afford. And 
it just, it was difficult. And I would have to look for anyone coming from London to order my stuff from Athos or wherever. And then when they're coming, they'll bring it back. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to start a clothing line. I didn't think big. It was just, okay, me and my friends, whoever sees what I like and they want to buy it, will make them some as well. So that, at that time, at the beginning of Rendor, it was just making affordable clothes that I liked and people would see. And my idea was people would see that they like it and buy it as well. Okay. So what do those first steps look like? So now that you've got the idea from sitting in traffic, which I've heard a lot about, what was the next step for you? So for me, there were some things I needed to do before actually launching the brand. So I registered the company in Nigeria. I opened a bank account. Actually, the first thing I did was an Instagram page. I was like, you know what, let me just lock in the name. (laughs) So I'm actually trying to figure things out. So it was the Instagram page, um, bank account, registering the company. And then I was like, okay, you know what? I have the prerequisites in place. And then now I need to come up with the first collection. So my first collection was actually 10 pieces. But I think at first I only bought enough fabric to make about three to five of each one because I didn't have a lot of money to invest at the beginning. When I converted it, it was about 400 pounds. So I needed to kind of fit everything I needed to do into that. So I bought 10 different styles, like three for each one. And I really just started with that. So then the 400 pounds would have come from like your job or savings or? I think it came, so it came from my hair brand. So money that Uh I had made, wigs. I used that to start Rendor. Okay. And then in terms of, how did that kind of work then? Because, okay, so you've got the money to get the first three to four, three to five pieces per design. Um, and then I'm guessing you sourced the fabric. Was that locally? So I sourced fabric locally because it was cheaper to buy them here. Mm-hmm. Fabrics here. I just went to the market with a friend of mine. Um, in fact, I think I bought the, fa- no, I came up with the styles first. And then I thought, okay, this fabric will kind of match this style. So I had an idea of what I was looking for when I went to the market. Mm-hmm. I just bought bits and pieces and things. Okay. And then did you give it to like a manufacturer or like a tailor to sew the first designs? At that time, because I wasn't really sure what my sales were going to be like, I couldn't afford to hire, to get my own tailor. Like I couldn't employ someone that I would have to pay a constant salary when I'm not even sure this is a business that's going to prosper. Or I'm going to be making any money back. So I had tailors that I had used to make things for myself. So if you know anything about Nigeria, we're always having weddings. People are always sewing what you call ashwabi. So a lot of people have tailors. So my idea was I would start with two tailors that already sew stuff for me and they have their own businesses. So even if I don't have work to give them, they're not losing any income. So yeah. it's my work for them, basically like an added bonus. So I would just give them, when I have an order, I would um, tell them, okay, this is what we have to make. This is the sample that you made for me. We're just going to recreate that in this size. So my turnaround time was usually about three to five days, depending on how much, how many orders I have at that time. So it was mm-hmm. just two tailors working on their own or sewing my stuff for me at the beginning. Okay. And did you have any patterns made or were they able to do it freehand? At the beginning, they were doing it freehand. Mm. These patterns, but then I realized the importance of patterns because they would make something and I would see that, okay, the last one that you made doesn't really match this 100%. So I, because I didn't even also have a fashion background, I didn't go to fashion school. So there were a lot of things that I didn't know. So mm. I've also had to improve my knowledge on the job and learn quickly because the thing is they they knew what patterns were but I mean who doesn't want to take the easy way out if you think about <laughs> it because we pattern have to it's like you have to make the pattern first and then make the outfit but for them they just want a freehand cut which is easier for them so I've had to learn things on the job and like do a lot of research to be able to guide them to make the pieces how I want them to make them. Yeah, I was even going to ask, like, even in terms of getting the fabric, zips, things like that in the beginning, was it just something that because of, you know, the tailors making things for you before when you go to events, you kind of knew like, okay, I probably will need this or whatever. Or was there anybody that was like able to give you a little bit of guidance a little bit? So I think a lot. So, I mean, if I'm thinking of a dress, for example, if we're going to make the dress, if maybe if you want it to be thicker, I knew that, okay, we need a lining, I knew, okay, if the lining wasn't thick enough, we can put maybe like a net or something in between. Mm. I know, okay, like just from having regular clothes, you know, okay, this needs a button, this needs zip or whatever. But there were definitely things that I didn't know about that when we're making the outfit, they'll be like, okay, yeah, we need this as well. We need this as well. We need this. So there was a lot of learning from my tailors as well, as well as me teaching them how I wanted things to be done. Yeah, it's definitely a two-way sort of process because I'm very 
big on having help, especially when it comes to the manufacturing or production of a garment, having help from people that know more than me, because I want to learn and understand why you do this. How can we make the garment better? How do you improve fit, et cetera? But at the same time, especially in the early days, you need someone that can just like get the job done so you can get the capital and then reinvest it into production. You were about to go into business with a friend, right? When you were thinking of Rendor. So actually, um, this was like, let's see, about seven, eight years ago now. I had like an older friend. So she was friends with my brother. My brothers are older. So she was friends with them. So there was really like eight years between us. So now that I look back at it, it wasn't really like a friendship. It was more like a big sister, little sister kind of relationship. And it was, I think the, the reason why we said, let's, why I agreed for a clothing line. So this even has nothing to do with Rendell. It was just, so we were both giving clothes to our tailors to make mm-hmm. for us. And it was like, let's do a business. But it never really went out of that conversation. It kind of just, I mean, I did some mental math. Okay, we can do four pieces ETC, but we never did any actual plan mm-hmm. to make like, after that conversation it never really went into anything and kind of just died down there okay well now having you know created Rendell for years ago and experienced what you've experienced do you feel like you wish you had a partner a business partner or are you happy being more of a solo founder yeah, I'm very happy being a solo founder Same. I don't mind <laughs> I don't mind help in that, okay, if I was going to expand and maybe like a design team, ETC, yes, definitely. But I think I, I like working alone and having mm. my thoughts just one lane. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm the same as well. And like, I'm definitely very good at listening to, you know, constructive criticism and like hearing people's feedback, et cetera. But I want to make my decision. <laughs> I don't want to have to compromise all the time. Like, it's just too much for me. <laughs> Talk to me about your creative process and how you go about creating a collection now, especially now that it's a lot different to when you first started out. I would say that a lot of the Rendor pieces, maybe like 90% of them are influenced by my personal style. So a lot of the time when I'm coming up with a collection, it's what I like at that point in time. And I've also found that my taste changes really quickly, which is why I say things like I don't have anything to wear. Cause it's like I've bought clothes and then I've worn them for like six months a year and I'm like okay I don't like these anymore so a lot of my collections are built around what I like at that time and I'm someone who spends a ridiculous amount of time on like Pinterest and just looking at a bunch of designs so I get like a lot of inspiration from there so when I've seen okay these are things that are trending these are things that I like <clears throat> I'm now able to narrow it down okay if I want this collection to have prints what kind of pieces or what kind of pieces will show prints better? Or if I want it to be structured, I'm like, okay. Um, so I can kind of tailor all the pieces towards a theme. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it's like, okay, I've come up with styles that I like. I sketch a few things and then I'm like, okay, we need to pick fabrics that match this. So luckily I have, I've got my suppliers to send me a bunch of different samples. So I have all sorts of fabrics at home. So when I've come up with styles, I'm now going through these fabrics to think, okay, what fabrics are going to match these styles? Mm -hmm. And then before I used to, well, not before, I tried for a phase to order just samples of fabrics, so like two yards each, and then get it shipped in and try. But it ended up being too expensive because I import all my fabrics. Mm -hmm. So if I'm paying really high um, shipping costs, considering what the exchange rate is now, we're paying in dollars, and then we end up sending them here and they don't work. I've literally wasted that much money. So what I do is, I kind of just go with my gut and order the fabric in bulk, send it over here, and then we make samples. And then if I find that the sample doesn't work with that style, I just change the style. So I'm supposed to lessen the fabric waste, for example, since I've bought it in bulk, just change the styles. So we try a couple of styles or tweak things here and there just to make, make it match what I've bought. And then usually with the style, that also influences what the photo shoot is going to be like and the set. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, okay. And a lot of my collections are not really mirrored with uh, fashion seasons so I don't do like it's not like for winter I'm going to be making because a lot of my customers or majority of my customers also aren't in Nigeria so they're countries where they have winter ETC but I find that I don't make pieces solely for that season because you want to buy something which is on the expensive side and have it in your wardrobe for a while Mm -hmm. so I would only maybe um link it to the season, maybe based on some colors. So if it's Christmas, I might do some reds. Valentine's Day, I might do some reds. If it's summer, I'm thinking, okay, bright colors. 
um, fall, winter, I'm thinking, hey, maybe let's do some nudes or some earth tones. But as far as linking them to seasons, I don't really do that. Also because I release five collections a year, which is more than the average um, fashion season. So yeah. Okay, what's the philosophy behind five collections a year? So I kind of just, I so a lot of it for me is I also don't want my staff to be idle. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to not be making money to pay them. And if I think if I do, what I found is if I do, let's say three collections a year, because I'm also not doing very big quantities, by the time I've done a collection in, let's say January, for example, most people that are going to buy usually buy within the first month. And then you kind of have people just trickling in here and there to buy the rest. So I think if I wait till July again before having another collection, there's a whole chunk within the year where we don't really have anything to do or anything to make. So I've I've kind of done it to a point where I know what numbers I'm ordering for each collection. And when we do that, I know that I'm pretty confident that we'll sell a lot of it at the beginning, but then still have a bit for people that come and find out about the brand later. So the whole thing about five collections is just so we always have something we're doing and people always have new things to shop. In case you don't like anything from this collection, it's possible that in another two and a half months, someone will bring us another collection, you'll find something you like then. And when it comes to budgeting, which is like the side of fashion that us designers are like, oh my God, <laughs> because we're too creative, so I have to think about these numbers. But like, how do you deal with that finance aspect of it? Honestly, and I feel like it's maybe I would say six months ago, I was still at a point in my brand where any wrong decision can bankrupt you. If you make a wrong collection, you can literally go back to square. So I think it's a lot of tweaking because I would say in 2020, I would only buy fabric for about 20 pieces for each style. And then I found that the brand was getting more popular. So I was having to restock too often. So um, what restock means is I'm now going to have to order another batch of fabric from my suppliers, pay large shipping fees. So I, I found that I was spending too much on shipping because I kept doing smaller quantities, smaller quantities. And then that summer, I thought, okay, you know what? Let me double the number that I usually do. And I did that and it didn't move as fast as all the previous ones. So I was like, so now I've gone and sunk all this money into buying bulk. It didn't work. So I think it's, it's, you're going to have, it's going to be different for each brand, but you're going to have to figure out a number that works where you don't sell out on the first day because that actually, you lose by selling out on the first day because a lot of people who wanted to buy on that day end up not being able to buy. And then when you restock three weeks or one month after, they probably spend the money on something else. Only those who really, really want it will actually come back to buy. So it has to be a number where you're not investing too much that you're stock but you're selling it of it and still having a bit for new people to come into the brand and I think just if we being careful I'm not that big of a risk taker because my business is self-funded everything was my money and now I just reinvest whatever we make from the brand back into it so I don't really have the luxury of just making very risky decisions because it could be left really easily so I would say just being careful and mm. thinking things a lot before making financial decisions yeah before we go into more of a marketing conversation I want to talk about what you do when you actually launch your collections so is there like a series of steps that you take maybe like we need to send out x amount of emails um to our newsletter list or we need to do x amount of social posts we need to do this sort of shoot is there anything that you have in terms of steps for a collection uh, before a collection launches I would usually release a behind the scenes reel which kind of shows all the styles, but just little snippets. And then I would also um, post each style before the day on our Instagram page, Twitter, kind of do some promo for that. I don't really like to do paid ads if it's before the day, because I find that a lot of people like it. I want to buy immediately. And then they find that, oh, it's not out till next week. And then you've lost those customers. So I would just post things on the Instagram page, on the Twitter page, and then usually bef- like two days before the collection launches, I send out an email, it's like plan your buy. So all the um, styles are there, the available sizes, the fabrics, everything you really want to know on the item you want to buy, we can tell you two days before. And then we, when we release the collection, then I can now start doing paid ads because everything is now ready to buy. And usually sometimes I have some influencers that I work with so if I make, if I'm designing a collection, I'm like, okay, you know what? This style is going to look so good on this person. Mm. So I reach out to 
for the day. And we kind of have conversations around, okay, our collection launches on this day, they would be, we would like it if you could post around this period as well. So sometimes I work with influencers and they already have the pieces before the collection launches. Okay, perfect. And let's talk about the marketing then. So what were some things that you did in the early days to get your brand to, let's say, at least a two-year mark and the things that you're doing now besides the influencer marketing? So I would actually say that a lot of my, my, my marketing has largely stayed the same since when I started till now. And for me, it's like there's two angles to it. So there's what we do on our end and what the customers do. So on our end, I just make sure that it's high quality images going out. So funny enough, in the first year and a half of Rendor, all the pictures are with my iPhone and I was modeling them myself and along with friends. But that's because I couldn't afford models, not necessarily because I wanted to do it by myself. So that's the only thing that's really changed. I don't really model myself anymore. I now use like professional models and co. But in terms of like, from the beginning, I've always been big on posting customers in the outfits. Cause I think it says more when people can come and see other people in your items and not just your models. Cause I mean, we all know you can curate how you want it to look on your model. You know what I mean? There's all sorts of editing that can go into it. Not that I, I do that, but it's things that brands can do. So people want to see, they don't want to see, for example, just your clothes in a size eight and maybe they're like a size 16. They want to see in other people who look like them. So one thing I've always been big on is getting customers to send me pictures of themselves in the outfit so that I can post that on my page. And every time people come, they see a bunch of people in it. And it's also like a tick of approval because these are not fake people. You've manuf- they, you haven't just manufactured people in your items. You know, you're seeing people in all different countries around the world wearing your clothes on your page. So that also makes people more comfortable wanting to shop from there. So a lot of my marketing has just been making sure that what I put out there is like clean images, straight to the point. If you look at it, you know, okay, what I'm looking at is the dress. Like I'm not going to do a hairstyle that for the model that's going to overshadow the outfit, for example. So everything has always just been, I want you to see the picture and know what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. And then the other angle of my customers to send me pictures as well and tag the brand ETC. Cool. And do you feel like your personal brand as well has had any like play in that? Because obviously you wear a lot of your own stuff on your brand, on your um, Instagram page, sorry. But you also support a lot of other designers as well, which is great. So I would say at the beginning, I thought that at the beginning, I thought people were buying because they knew me. And maybe that happened for like the first collection because I modeled the whole first collection by myself. So I would say it definitely had some sort of an impact on it. But like a month ago, I was doing like some comparisons between my personal page and my Rendor page. And I think on my personal page, I have just under 16,000 and on the Rendor page, just under 19,000. And there's only like 200 followers in common, which is like 2%. So I realized that, okay, this has gone way past me. Maybe at the very beginning, I had some level of impact on people that were following the brand, that shopping from the brand. But now I think they're like two separate um like identities yeah and I think that's a good thing I feel like I've been having this conversation recently with friends about having to step back from being you know from it being Rennie's like yes it's Rennie's business but it's not Rennie if that makes sense you have to be separate and then you're also able to look at it in a very different way like you can look at it from you know top down like I'm you can make better decisions basically versus being more emotional or maybe being a bit anxious and then you know allowing those emotions to affect how well you can produce your work or whatever it's very important to be able to like separate the two I find because yeah. I even thought that with being the face of your brand can help but then it also has downsides because then people think Rennie is Rendol, Rendol is Rennie so they might have a question they want to ask about the brand and they wouldn't DM the brand or email the brand, they will send that to me. And I mean, I guess at the very beginning, it kind of worked, but when you get to a stage where you're trying to scale and you're trying to take a step back, you don't want to be too involved in every single aspect. And also if I'm employing people to handle customer service, you handle this, you handle that, and I'm paying salaries for that. I'm not getting value if everybody's still coming to me with their issues because they feel Rennie is Rendol, Rendol is Rennie. So I, I think it also helped when I stopped modeling for the brand because the people stopped attaching both of us together so, so much. Yeah. 
And I guess this is a relevant time to ask maybe how your working style has changed from the beginning, because, you know, whether people want to miss or not, you have to work really, really, really hard in anything, but especially in the beginning. And I feel like right now there's such a negative connotation behind hard work and discipline and things like that. But it does take that (laughs) to get to a certain level and then you can usually chill a little bit, you know. So I would say up until three months ago, I did pretty much almost everything by myself, everything apart from sewing of the clothes. So coming up with marketing, budgeting, customer service, deliveries, literally everything that you would think of that comes into a business, I was doing it by myself. And even like the assisting of the tailor, so like the sewing of the buttons, uh, finishing here and there, the ironing of the clothes, packing for deliveries, I was doing everything by myself. I mean, I had gone through a couple of assistants that just didn't really work for me. So it's like, if I can do this myself, I'm going to do it by myself. But now I have an assistant who helps a lot. So she helps with, I was doing quality control myself. So she helps with the quality control and the packing the orders to send out part of it. And then I deal more now with marketing and uh, business structure, basically. So yeah, I would say you definitely 1000% need like a crazy amount of discipline and like hard work because it's really hard and you don't realize how hard it is until you get into it at the beginning it always just seems like yeah just need to do this do this do this and sell and then you actually start the business in fact the easiest part of any business is launching when you actually start the day-to-day running of it it becomes much harder and there's so many you have like so many losses so many disappointments and you just have to keep telling yourself I can't get beat down like mm-hmm. I have to just as far as I'm concerned, I think that every problem has a solution. It might not be easy to find. It might not be cost effective, but every problem that you find will have a solution. So maybe spend about five minutes to 10 minutes being sad about it. Let myself sit in my feelings. And after that, I'm like, yeah, so what's the solution to this problem? And I find that a lot of people say, oh, I don't want to work in nine to five. So I'm going to start my business. I find that you work longer hours. It's almost like I don't have any time of the day that's not for work. Not, not that I'm working the whole day, but if a work thing comes up at 9 p.m., at 2 a.m., I'm gonna hand, if I have to handle it, I'm going to handle it at that time. And I'm not going to feel, oh, this isn't working hours. As far as I'm concerned, any time that I have to face my business, I'm going to do that. Yeah, no, 100%. Like structure and everything, that's all great. And I'm one of those people that's very like, I need structure. I have my morning routine, my evening routine, but I also understand that you need to be flexible. Um, especially if, you know, if you are a designer and you're like, you know, manufacturing overseas or something in China, whatever, they are eight hours, at least in the UK, I think they're eight hours ahead, sometimes nine. <laughs> and Nigeria, including the same time, only, yeah. I think when it goes back by one hour or something, but literally my suppliers are awake when it's 2 a.m. in Lagos. Yeah. And I want to get those conversations in because by the time I wake up, they're closing their days. Mm. And most and they're not going to compromise for you. So they're not going to be up at their 2 a.m. speaking to you. You have to be up at your 2 a.m. speaking to them when it's fresh in the morning. So, yeah, there's a lot of having to walk around the time zones of people that you work with as well. Yeah. Um, obviously, you've mentioned in this conversation and before online that you felt stagnant at times. And obviously, you know, it's business. It gets hard. Um, are you able to maybe go into a bit of detail of maybe one of those like hard moments when you really thought, I don't know if I can do this anymore or I think I'm ready to quit? So it's funny. I mean, sometimes I would say, oh, I'm done with this because like I'm tired. But in my mind, I know that I'm not going anywhere. So I think I say on the outside when I'm like feeling burnt out that, yeah, I'm not doing this anymore. But like 30 seconds after, I'm like, you know, you're lying to yourself. All you just need is a break. And I found that I haven't really had a break from the business in the last, in, since I started in 2019. So it's been over three years and I haven't had like an extended period where I'm like, I'm not dealing with work. Like this time is just for me. And that's, it, it happens with a lot of so, um, solo founders, especially if you don't have like funding, you don't have a team behind you and it's just you trying to figure out how to grow your business. It's really difficult for you to take time away because, and also when you're spending, you're doing a lot of things by yourself because if you take time away, who's going to do that? But that still has to run. So I think it comes, rest comes with growth, if that makes sense. The bigger you are, the more help you are. It's easier to take 
some time away from the brand, which I need to do soon because I actually feel sometimes I'm just lying down and I'm like, I am so exhausted. But then it's a combination of, I feel like I'm working too hard, I'm tired, but then there's the other side where I feel like I'm not doing enough and I want to grow more. So there's a lot of like conflicts, but you have to take time to remind yourself where you started and where you've gotten to. And sometimes just give yourself the praise that's going to make you feel better. But I would say like one of my hobbies is going on holiday. So when I start feeling like, yeah, I need a break, I'll go on holiday. Unfortunately, I still kind of have to work when I'm on holiday because as I said, because I do a lot of things myself or a lot of things still have to go through me. Even if I'm on holiday, I have to have maybe two hours every day where I'm speaking to my staff and finding out what's going on. But at least there's still the 80% when I'm on holiday. So I think it's all about finding, because if you get burnt out, then I feel like the effects are worse. So when you feel yourself getting to that point, whatever it is that helps you calm down, you have to force yourself to take it. Sometimes I would say, okay, you know what, after 6 p.m., I'm not responding to any emails till the next morning. Like as long as no one is going to die between 6 p.m. tonight and 9 a.m. tomorrow, I just keep trying to forgive myself like little bits and pockets of rest here and there. Yeah. And do you have any, uh, I guess, productivity hacks that you do to help you be as efficient as possible during the workday? I think generally I've just been someone who will, like I don't procrastinate a lot when it comes to work. I can do it for other things in my life, maybe like go through my wardrobe and give clothes out or whatever. That can take me months to do. But in terms of work, I found that I've just always been someone who would do what needs to be done at that time. And I, but I think the people who struggle with having like doing work when it's supposed to be done, I think, I don't know how to advise someone who procrastinates in that vein, but I'm thinking if you think about negative effects of not doing it, then it might help you be like, okay, you know what? Let me just do this and not have to suffer whatever the consequences are going to be. Do you know what I'd even say to that? If you feel like not doing something, don't do it and then feel how it feels <laughs> to not have done that in terms yeah. of the stress and the regret. Yeah. And the next time you will not procrastinate because you know that you do not want to feel like that again. Yeah. That is probably the best way. Like, yeah. As long as yeah. it doesn't like kill anyone or like get you in serious trouble, because then you'll realize it's not worth it. It's better to just get things done. And you feel so good after. Yeah, so you feel so fulfilled it's like oh I can rest and have nothing on my mind thinking about oh, when am I going to do this I'm not thinking okay eight o'clock okay then nine o'clock it just <laughs> there's peace having done what you're supposed to do <laughs> exactly so when was a really big pinch me moment for you like you can't believe this is your life I feel so lucky I feel so blessed <laughs> I, th- I think my first magazine feature that I knew about so we got featured in Vogue three times it was like three um three months back to back and this was just after my first year so I launched Rendor in July of 2019 and the features were October November and December of 2020 so it was just over a year after and for me it's like Vogue is like British Vogue is like one of the biggest magazines in the world and I'm thinking it's just me here with my two tailors and we are literally in Vogue. So that was like, I had to say, okay, I know you're really hard on yourself, but brands, it takes some brands 15, 20 years to hit this landmark and you hit that. So yeah, that I think every time that I get a magazine feature or a blog post or whatever, because what I do is I randomly just search Rendor on Google and I find that, oh, we've been featured by Cosmo or we've been featured by Glamour because they don't actually send it to you when they do. So every time that I do that, and I'm like, wow, this is another international recognition, it's, it's a pinch me moment for me. Love that for you. Amazing. Um, so one reason I was so excited to interview you is because you're a Nigerian designer. I'm half Nigerian. And I feel like a lot of African designers are getting so much recognition right now, which is great. Like that's what we obviously um, want. And I feel like they're being introduced into, I, I want to say the Western world without it sounding like oh they are African designers it's more like they're part of the designing or designer landscape which is great because it shouldn't be um segregated or anything like that we shouldn't be seen as just African designers we should be seen as like designers all around so like I'm really happy with how much how far um African designers and quotes are going these days see us in the same rooms as brands that you've known all your life or like household names mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure 
that our quality matches up to the quality of the brands that you look up to as well. So I'd say I'm happy with where it's going. I, I still think we could more doors could be open for us, but I think we're definitely on the right trajectory now. And I'd say for us, I think we also need to believe that we des we're deserving of those positions. Do you know what I mean? It shouldn't be, if you're going to call a Spanish brand, for example, that has been around, let's say for 15 years, I should be able to comfortably call my brand as well. So just because we're from Africa, which seems like, or which is a third world continent, for example, it shouldn't mean that the designs or what we put out is inferior to, to what you guys are selling. Because I, I even find that a lot of Africans also don't believe that we should be in those spaces. So you'd find people complaining about why are you charging, let's say, 300 pounds for a dress, ETC, but you're so happy to pay 300 pounds to, let's say, a coast or a brand that you believe is in first. I think there's a lot of unlearning that we also have to do within ourselves that as long as my quality and what I'm putting out there, which is very important, is matching up to the quality of these people charging these prices, there's no reason why I should put myself on a lower step and say, oh no, I'm not deserving of those, or it's not, I don't have it, I can't charge those prices. No, as long as your quality is matching what you're charging, I really feel we should feel like we are deserving of these positions. 100% and that's such a huge mindset block for so many designers especially from um, ethnic minority backgrounds and I can say for myself like I when I started I was making you know gowns and charging 30 pounds to make the gown and then add the material on top and these gowns because I was like 18 at the time would take me a good four days because <laughs> I didn't know what the hell I was doing and if you think about it that's 10 pounds a day I don't know what that is, but it's giving me 10p an hour or something like that, which is not, not good at all. And when I was working in All Saints at the time, um, a colleague of mine told me like, no, you need to increase your price like 75 pounds. I was like, no, no one's going to pay that. And I did. And people paid it. And then my neighbor, who's a bridal designer, well, was a bridal designer. Um, she taught me so many things. And she was like, no, you need to be like in the hundreds. Like, this is ridiculous. This person's charging that. Why are you like scared to do it yourself? And then I'd go up and up and up. But even to this day, now like the mindset work has been done, but it's so easy for me to be like, oh no, I won't post that because it's going to cost this. And then people feel a bit, you know, and I feel like we also need to expand our horizons with who our audience is. It's very easy to look at, the people around you and think oh but they wouldn't pay this but that's not your target customer right but we kind of stay in that frame of mind it's it's very true because i said at the beginning my prices were much cheaper than they are now but i would also say that the quality has increased so at the beginning i was buying fabrics here and i was very limited to the designs i could make because i couldn't i can't pick a color for a style until i go to the market and see what's available well, now that I'm importing all my fabrics, I'm getting prints made specially for my brand. I'm getting fabrics pleated, all sorts of more complicated things. Obviously, my costs have gone up. I'm paying for these things in foreign exchange, like in dollars. We don't spend dollars in Nigeria. I'm shipping it here in dollars. And I'm ordering stuff from brands that I look up to. And I'm matching the quality. And I'm like, I've gone up. Do you get what I mean? So I shouldn't be charging way less than these people. And I even feel like as smaller brands, I won't say we put in more work, but there's a lot of, there's more things that you do by yourself. So there's a lot more, like think there's no division of labor if I put it that way. There's a lot of things you're doing by yourself. So you're not taking into account how much you're paying yourself for these things. And at the end of the day, I mean, everybody's going into business to make money. No one is really going into business for fun. So yeah. there's no reason why you have prices that are keeping you stagnant or cheap and just keeping you at a level where you're not really growing. You're not growing financially. You're putting in, all this work, you can't really see the money to spend or just buy yourself something nice, do you get what I mean? Yeah. So I honestly feel like people think, so even I am not my target market with Rendo because while the brand makes money, it's not all my money. It's, all, mm -hmm. it's also for the business. I'm living on whatever it is that the brand is paying me. So I can't, if I was a regular, if I was a customer and not the owner of Rendo and I was shopping from Rendo, I can't afford to buy everything in the collection at that goal. So I've had to tell myself that even if myself and my friends can't afford it as easily, it doesn't mean that there is someone out there who can. Because some people might tell me, oh, Rendon is expensive. And there's another person who's told me, ah, oh, your stuff are so cheap. I want to buy so much. Do you get what I mean? So honestly, I think you match your quality to your prices and then find somebody who's willing to pay for it. Because if you think about it, you have 
let's say you have a G-Wagon, which is a really good car in terms of how it's made, the brand name and everything. And then you have a, let's say like a Nissan or something, like a Nissan salon car. At the end of the day, they will still both get you to the same spot. If you're going from point A to point B, both cars will get you there, but they're not charging the same. So let those who can afford the Nissan buy the Nissan. Let those who can afford the G-Wagon buy the G-Wagon. That's the way I see it. Exactly. There's more than enough people to serve and there's more than enough money in this world. So we have to think bigger. Some people don't even want to shop from you if you're not a certain price mm-hmm. because they feel like if... So you have people who are making so much money that they don't even know what to do with it. They don't want to spend... They don't want to shop if your things are like, let's say, 20 pounds, 30 pounds because they feel like, oh, everybody's going to have it. I want to wear something exclusive, which is why you find that there are brands that charge thousands of pounds. You can find a handbag for 30,000 pounds. And it's because they want to, let's say, curate their target market or whatever to people who can afford it. So I really feel like the world is big enough. Income is big enough around the world for people to just tailor their their, um, purchases to what they can afford. 100%. And this is information that you kind of find out as you go. Obviously, before you launch, you want to do your, you know, target audience, market research, etc. But I mean, I did it. And I realized that the customer was completely different. I'll be like, oh, yeah, she's in her 20s. And she spends much money. But especially now, at the time, I was so young. So now, you know, being 25, and knowing the value of money, and knowing that if you earn a certain amount, and you maybe you rent, a flat somewhere you're only left with like a few hundred pounds a month exactly. you're not going to go and spend 700 pounds on a jumpsuit because you're, you're not going to do that so if you, yeah. exactly but most of my um, customers now most of them are American firstly but they have hey. high disposable income yeah and I'm happy with that as long as they pay <laughs> most of my sales come from America now um, and I have to say like why did that happen they have they definitely have higher disposable income. And I've also found that they also have credit cards more. Like mm. in Nigeria, most people have credit cards. So you're not really buying anything on credit and paying back after. If you don't have the raw cash in your hand now, you're most likely not going to get that thing. But you know, I, I love my American girl so much. <laughs> I, I love them because I'm like, thank you so much for <laughs> what you do for me. Yeah. And one tip, guys, if you're listening to this as well, um, if you're trying to find out more information about your customers, when people go on your website have like a light box pop-up sort of tool where they can subscribe to your newsletter and offer an incentive such as 10% off or you know exclusive content or whatever it is that they'll receive first before anybody else and you want to be very specific with the questions that you ask when they are signing up so you don't want to have an extensive list of like 10 different things your first name your last name your address your this your that because that's going to put people off you know signing up to your newsletter yeah but if you can do I would say first name so that when you send emails it can be personalized email address obviously and birthday that will give you so much information on just their age and then from that you'll be able to tailor your designs tailor your marketing and things like that to who that customer is and if you do um let's say you have a ready-to-wear brand and then you have like a bespoke brand you can create two different emails to not bespoke brand ready to wear line and a bespoke line you can create two different emails to tailor to what those people are looking for um but that's super super important to really understand who your customer is because now i know that that woman is in her mid-30s to mid-40s or she's the mother of the bride which can be much older than that could be like 50s 60s or she's um i have actually a client who is a grandmother and she's in her i think her late 80s (laughs) but then they have more disposable cash the older they are right and another thing to add to what you said is there's this thing where brands do where did you find out about us so there's instagram so it shows whenever they take something it shows you what you need to do more of Mm -hmm. so this this line of marketing is definitely working people are hearing about my brand so let me invest more money into that and then you could also see okay i'm spending money on Instagram ads, for example, but no one is finding about my brand from there. So maybe you do less of that. So that really helps as well. Yes, I agree. Data, basically. You need as much data as possible. Cool. So three, five questions. So number one, 2023 is obviously around the corner. I don't know where this time has gone. Scary. Um, <laughs> what's the long-term vision for Rendell and who do you have to become to get there? So I think my vision for Rendell is just to be like a household attainable luxury brand name. So you're thinking, okay, I don't have that much money to afford bigger brands ETC, but I still want something that's still a bit exclusive, good quality ETC. And you think immediately rental. And I want you to see 
Randall prints and know, okay, that dress is from Randall. So I'm really just trying to, my vision is just to keep growing internationally. I don't want it to just be down to maybe three or four countries or five countries, whatever. Like I want everybody to know about Randall. So that's my main plan um, for the brand. I think I need to be less apologetic and just more believing of myself that I deserve to be in these spaces and just let go of that imposter syndrome. So every time maybe costs go up, because we do know what's going on in most economies around the world, everything is going up, which means that cost needs to go up as well. So um, cost is going up, so prices need to go up. So every time I'm about to increase my prices because I literally cannot function at previous price, I'm telling myself, oh, no one is going to buy ETC. While it might be true that you might lose some customers because they cannot afford, there's still always someone out there that's willing to pay that price. So I need to be more believing of myself and just less apologetic about being in spaces that I'm finding myself in these days. Love that. What advice would you give to someone starting out that you, you wish you heard when you started? Hmm. Success does not come overnight. Oh my God. You really think that once you start the business, the money is just going to be coming in and yeah, you've made it, but it really doesn't happen that way. And I mean, the definition of success is different to different people. So some people want to hit this mark and they're like, okay, you know what, I'm successful now. So it really depends on what you find that successful. But in all in all, like I would say in a subjective, okay, what is success? Okay, you're making this amount of money, your brand can function on its own ETC. It doesn't come overnight. And it's not going to be without a lot of difficulties. So when you hit a roadblock, it's not a bad life, it's a bad day. And take a nap do whatever it is that helps you calm down and just get back up and keep moving. And I would say one thing that I wish people or I had known before is to not attach too much of my emotions to the brand because every day I'm trying to learn that if someone doesn't like something, doesn't like a style or something that will fit them properly or whatever the reason might be, it's not an attack on you. So don't take it too personally because you find that if you are someone who does that you're, you're going to be upset a lot like your feelings are going to be hurt a lot yeah. and you can't be living all day so just try and detach emotionally a bit from and look at things factually if something doesn't fit someone for example or they see the product and it wasn't up to standard or whatever they have a right to be upset so that to don't think oh because they're upset then you now have to talking down on yourself for whatever reason it might be they have a right to be upset you fix the issue and you keep it moving 100%. So, and another thing that is washed. So, I don't know if you know what I mean by washed, but I would say at the beginning, if any influencer or anybody reaches out to me and they're like, oh, they want to wear Rendor, I used to get so excited that, oh my God, this person is about my brand. And I don't give myself time to write a contract or to say, okay, this is what I want to get out of this partnership. So, I, I found that I was always getting the shorter end of the stick. I send you free outfits. Sometimes I'm paying you or I paid expensive shipping fees to send it to you and then I find that I didn't get value back and that's one because I didn't specifically tell you a b and c is what I want to get out of this partnership a b and c is what I'd like you to do so I think it also come me saying there on being more feeling like you deserve to be in spaces so if you feel like you deserve something if the opportunity comes you're not going to be too excited that you forget about what you want to get out of it so I'd say if someone reaches out to you yeah it's a good thing it's recognition etc but also value yourself and put down your foot that this is what I want, this is what I don't want, it is. And that it, it ends up in the end, it's like a better collaboration between you and the person. Definitely. And that can help you save so much money because sending all these products out to influencers costs money, especially if you're having someone make them or you're making it yourself. That's time that you need to account for as well. Even shipping fees as well are expensive because we're sending, for, for example, like at the moment of we, what I charge for shipping is lower than what I'm charged. So I'm basically only charging about 40, 50% of what I actually spent to send out just to make it more accessible for people who want to order abroad. Well, I'm thinking if you're sending to an influencer, you're paying the full shipping fees, you're letting go of money that you could have made from that outfit that you're giving to them for free. So even if you find that you're not paying this influencer, you're also losing something. So you need to be gaining something back from that as well. Exactly. I remember years ago, um, 
this influencer from Italy reached out and she was like, hey, like I love to wear your pieces. I model so I can take some photos, blah, blah. And although I was a bit skeptical because I was looking at her content and I was like, it wasn't necessarily the photos, but just more the engagement. Um, I was like, you know what? Let me just try it out and see what happens. And I don't know too much about Italy. Like I only just went there this summer and I loved it. Absolutely love it. Um, but, you know, being from London, I know that salary wise and all of those sort of demographic things that I need to know we're higher (laughs) right so it probably wasn't the smartest move in terms of audience also when she took the photo and uploaded it all the people that were messaging me were other influencers in Italy that also wanted some free clothes and it's nothing to do with Italy whatever but it's just that situation it could be the same thing in the UK it could be the same thing in Nigeria whatever and it was just so annoying because I had to sit down and make that garment and hand sew some of the pieces to get nothing out of it but then you live and you learn right you live and you learn I've had so many collaborations that I'm like oh, I wish I didn't go into that and one thing I'd say actually for anyone who's listening is when you want to work with an influencer, you have to think, there's so many things you have to look at. So look at the pictures on your page, look at how you, the image that you would like to put out, and then look at the pictures on their page. Does it match? So if they make content, is it going to match what, what you want to put out, the quality of things you want to put out? You have to look at their engagement. Because a lot of people have millions of followers, but people aren't following them because they want to see what clothes they're wearing. They're not following them because they say, okay, I'm going to buy whatever it is Remy's wearing, for example. So it's not always by follow, amount of followers. It's really not always by that. And you also have to look at people commenting, oh my God, where is this from? Oh my God, I'm going to buy this now, ETC. You have to look at their engagement. Like, are people following them because you want them, because of a, like, a value that they're giving that aligns with your value? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And if someone is a hair and beauty influencer, for example, you have to know that most people are following them for hair and beauty. So they might wear your piece if you're selling clothing and it looks nice. And one or two people may ask, oh, where is it from? But the majority of their followers or their fan base is not for your product. So you can't now be disappointed and be thinking, oh, well, she had 100,000 followers. She gets a lot of engaged or no one bought my pieces. That's because you haven't aligned yourself with someone who's in your industry or someone who's doing advertising for what you are doing. Like you can't give a piano seller your clothes and expect that people are going to come and buy it there. Exactly. No, that's a very good analogy. <laughs> and last question is where can our listeners find you? Hmm. On Instagram, my handle is Reni Abino. So it's R-E-N-I-A-B-I-N-A. And on Twitter, it's at the Rendell. T-H-E-R-E-N-D-O-L-L. Perfect. I'll put all of that in the podcast description. But thank you so much, Renny, for your time. This was such an inspiring conversation and just how practical your advice was as well. So much. I really enjoyed this. <laughs> thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. I hope you're inspired to take action on your dreams right away. If you enjoyed it, please leave a five star review on Apple Podcasts. This really helps us expand our show and reach more people just like you. Until next time, keep striving and thriving.